I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. I'd like you to think about where you live for a moment. Whether you live in a city or a small town or a village or a suburb, wherever, I'd like you to think about if Over the past year, you've experienced it in a different way. For many of us, in a pre-COVID world, our city or village or suburb or whatever was far, far more than our own neighborhood. Far more even than our own neighborhoods, because most of us had two. Where we lived and where we worked. And of course, we also had destinations. Remember those? Downtown for a game or a meal at a nice restaurant. Checking out new and trendy neighborhoods with great Sunday morning brunch spots. Going to the gym or the library or the actual physical doctor's office, not the one on Zoom. Anyway, now we're not going anyplace. And maybe this hasn't been your experience, but I think for a lot of us, our cities and our towns and suburbs have shrunk dramatically. What has mattered to me over much of the past year has been the part of my city that, now that Toronto is back under lockdown, I see every day, exclusively. If I can't get to a given destination from my house in about 15 minutes, right now, it might as well not exist. And it turns out that's a really interesting way to think about how we build cities, how we use cities, and how we grow them. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Alex Bozikovic is a staff columnist and the architecture critic at The Globe and Mail. Hello, Alex. Hey, Jordan. Why don't we start, um, I was going to say with a simple definition, but but maybe it's not that simple. But what is the 15-minute city? Where does the concept come from and what does it describe? So... The idea is actually an old idea. Um, It goes back at least 50 years in the world of city planning. And really, it harkens back to previous models of cities built before the car. And the basic idea is that everything you need for daily living is within walking distance of your home. So the idea um, is not a new one. The rhetoric or the phrase of 15-minute city uh, was popularized by the mayor of Paris over the last few years, Anne Hidalgo, um, because she is interested in pursuing the 15-minute city or turning Paris into, as much as possible, a 15-minute city. So this is um, kind of a familiar idea that has uh, fresh relevance today. How do you define it for analysis purposes when you're looking to uh, see whether a certain city or neighborhood would qualify? So there are a bunch of different definitions of the term, and the one that Paris uses actually includes workplaces, or generally tries to include workplaces along with other things. If you include workplaces, this becomes a little bit trickier because trying to find 
to link up everyone's home and everyone's workplace in a large city is very complex. The more familiar and sort of less controversial definition is that you have the necessities of daily living within walking distance of home. For the article I did for the Globe and Mail with some colleagues a little while ago, we used a measurement called amenity density, um, which was developed by Statistics Canada and CMHC. And that defines it as um, having a grocery store, a pharmacy, and a public transit stop within one kilometer, and having a daycare, a primary school, and a library within one and a half kilometers. And then there's a larger circle for a health facility and a larger circle for um, places of employment. So, you know, the least, the most straightforward way is to say, you know, pick up a prescription, go shopping, be able to catch a bus or a train. You should be able to do all of those things within roughly a 10-minute walk of where you are. Why is that setup so desirable? I'm sorry if that sounds like an obvious question, but just, uh, you know, what does it impact? Well, yeah, I mean, it is, it sounds really straightforward um, because when we think of our cultural ideas about what a city is or how people should live, I mean, you think of Sesame Street, um, you know, it seems easy, but the fact is that most people in North America don't have that at all. I mean, the large majority of people in Canada, as is also true in the United States, live in what planners will call car-oriented suburbs or car-oriented places. And if you have that, then, you know, you effectively are limited to being able to survive comfortably um, to having a car. If you don't have a car to um, available to do those basic things, you know, your life becomes much more complex. Uh, you effectively become a second-class citizen. And this has obvious implications for youth and teenagers. It has obvious implications for anyone with disabilities. Um, and, and there's a strong overlap, of course, between people with disabilities and seniors. But, um, you know, this is a very large and growing issue for the many Canadians and the many North Americans who are aging in places where they need to have cars and may not always be able to drive. I suppose um, over the past year, as we've been in the middle of a pandemic, this has been exacerbated because I know uh, I know I haven't left my own 15-minute uh, city with, with whatever it has. And if it doesn't have it, uh, I'm probably not going too far to get it. Yeah, it really has been an interesting experience, hasn't it? Um, for a lot of people, you know, me too, just being forced to confront what we actually have, you know, in that little circle around our apartment or around our house. And I think what has become clear is that with when transportation becomes difficult for whatever reason, in this case, it is the, um, the risk of infection during a pandemic, but it can be other things, you know, if it becomes harder for us to use a larger metropolitan area just to to survive, you know, that's a problem that we need to address. So people who think about resiliency or resilience um, will often talk about this as well. And resilience is the idea essentially that a society can deal comfortably with some kind of crisis. We often hear this in terms of climate change and the extreme weather that comes with climate change. But this is a situation where our you know, resilience is being tested. Um, and we have, these, right, we have these larger systems of being able to drive, being able even to take public transit, you know, which no longer works so well. Um, and so you know, we need to really rethink, perhaps we're being forced to rethink, our reliance on those larger networks and whether we can figure out a way to, um, to make our societies and to make our places more resilient so we can cope in a moment of crisis like this one. Can you give us um, an example or two of international cities that are good at this, that have done this? Uh, you mentioned Paris is really pushing for it. Are there, are there others we can use as models? 
I think any city in Western Europe fits this mold. When you talk about the cities that are most beloved or most um, highly praised in urban planning circles these days, Copenhagen in Denmark is one. Um, and that fits this model perfectly because it's actually quite a small city. It only has roughly a million people, but those people are quite tightly concentrated into a small area. And so what you get there, as you do in many other European cities, is you've got people who are living at a high level of population density. In other words, you have a lot of people close together. And you get a lot of good things that come with that. When you have a lot of people close together, you know, government is able to provide a high level of amenities. When you have a lot of people, public transit can be frequent because it's there, it's serving many people, um, you know, and you have the, the tax base to support it. You know, and on the commercial side, you know, when you have many people living together in a neighborhood, local restaurants, local shops, you know, and larger ones as well, you know, tend to do well. When you have lots of people, you're able to provide a high level of public amenity, and it also supports all sorts of commerce, even down to the level of, you know, restaurants or shops on a street corner. And that's something that you don't see in most North American cities, and that's something you don't see almost anywhere in North American suburbs. Right. Well, I mean, how do Canadian cities stack up? We have a ton of land, so I assume we're much more spread out. We are much more spread out. And the measurements that we used for the Globe and Mail story a little while ago, um, we're going to really tell the story. Effectively, the only places where you have a lot of amenity-dense blocks or a lot of, let's say, 15-minute neighborhoods are in certain parts of the big cities. Vancouver, um, in and around downtown Vancouver. In Toronto, in and around downtown Toronto. And in Montreal, large parts of the island of Montreal all do very well. And then we also have sections in the other major cities in the country. Quebec City does best, and then moving downwards through the list, largely the prairie cities um, and then the maritime cities um, don't stack up as well. The highest percentage in any of these cities is in Vancouver, where you've got roughly 66% of particular blocks being amenity-dense or 15-minute places. The only thing is that that's a little bit deceptive because that's measuring areas within the city of Vancouver. The city of Vancouver is, of course, only a small part of the lower mainland. And so if you look at the larger picture, you know, Vancouver, which is predominantly a pretty suburban place, you know, those numbers would come right down. So I think it's safe to say, you know, the highest number that you're going to find or the highest sort of share of 15-minute neighborhoods in any city or any city region in Canada is about half at best. Um, And, you know, depending on how you slice it, it could be considerably lower. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding. With me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. So where, I guess, did those cities go wrong? And and maybe even if they didn't go wrong uh, back then, what choices were they making instead? Well, it really does have to do with history. Um, you know, the places that have stuff close together, that have both homes and workplaces and various kinds of commerce and schools and institutions all close together, those are all places that built stuff a long time ago. I mean, to put it very simply, 
the urban planning profession, since it really came to power in there in there around World War II, you know, has been sorting stuff out has been separating where we live from where we work and separating institutions from those things. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but that's the basic idea of what's called segregation of uses. Um, and so that was the dominant thinking for a long time uh, and has really shaped most of the building of the places that we live today. And where we are now is at a moment in history where we're realizing the older places that were built before all that stuff came into effect actually function much better. And this idea of a 15-minute neighborhood, you know, really, uh, as I said at the beginning, really harks back to older ideas and older ways of building. So how do you fix that in our modern cities? Can you fix it? This is the big question. There are two answers, one of which is more obvious and one of which is less obvious. You know, the first one is essentially to work with the places we already have that are good and to let people live there and to really grow those places so that more people can enjoy a mix of uses, as planners would put it, can enjoy this 15-minute lifestyle. So, you know, we've seen that to a certain degree downtown Vancouver. You know, people have spent the last 40 years bringing new residents into a downtown that was really only offices. And by many measures, downtown Vancouver and the neighborhoods right around it today do very, very well. You know, to some extent, we're seeing that pattern in Toronto where the downtown core and the areas right around it have been adding more people as well as adding more jobs. So that's one answer. Um, and in Montreal, you know, you have historically a really great pattern that has been largely maintained. At least on the island of Montreal, you've got some neighborhoods where all of these things are going right. So that's option number one, bring people in to where there is already stuff. Um, you know, and I would argue we need to be doing that much more aggressively than we already are. But, you know, it's underway. Um, the second one is the bigger option, uh, is the bigger challenge as well, because that means looking at the bulk of our urban areas, which means suburbs, car-oriented suburbs, and figuring out how to make them into more 15-minute cities, how to take car-oriented suburbs and give them some of these qualities that, you know, we now recognize are valuable. To go back to the first one um, for a second, because I do think it's something that we're seeing a lot of cities try to do. Um, me and you are speaking uh, in Toronto right now, virtually. Toronto's well known for a local pushback to many projects that would bring in uh, a higher density of residents or more mixed-use stuff. How do you combat that? I've become, as I've been working as a, a writer talking about architecture and planning and city issues, it's become more and more clear to me that planning is really the key to a lot of the big questions that we think about in cities. Um, planning policy and then the politics that shape that policy. And it's much more complicated than people would think because when we talk about new development, the way we as citizens engage with new development um, is generally when it lands in our backyard. You get a notification from the city saying, you know, some developer now wants to add a new building, you know, within a couple of hundred meters of where you live. And, you know, would you like to comment on it? And the reason that we do things that way, this is acutely true in Toronto, but also true in other places, is that we have established a model of building cities and of cities growing in which things are generally not allowed unless you get permission first. Um, you know, historically and in many cities around the world, you have a, a system of city planning where, you know, the rules are what they are and people build following those rules. You know, in Toronto and to some degree elsewhere in other big cities across the country, you need to ask permission to build more or less anything. 
And so, you know, every incremental new building, every incremental new development, you know, is subject to this discussion. And it always, um, you know, the, the default is no, essentially. Um, and anybody who wants to build anything, whether it's social housing or the most expensive housing or an office building, has to jump through hoops and ask for permission. And the historical reasons for that situation are, are complicated. I mean, as I say, they go back to, you know, 70-odd years of planning and the politics that have shaped it. So it's not easy to change that. But I do think we need to start to tackle that. We need to start having bigger political conversations, as Vancouver is doing right now, the city of Vancouver, about how we want our cities to grow in a comprehensive way. Um, You know, given where we are in 2020, where should people live? Where should jobs go? How can we think about metrics like the 15-minute city? And how can we think about sustainability? And how should we change the rules to make it easier for these kinds of new development or this kind of growth to to happen um, and not have every new building and not have every increment turn into a fight? You mentioned Vancouver there. Have you seen the appetite among municipalities for making these changes, changing these rules, uh, moving harder towards a 15-minute city in Canada? Have you seen that appetite grow over the course of the pandemic? I think so. There have been sort of pushes in a couple of directions um, because I think in many cases people have come in, you know, and sort of have applied their prior views to this situation. You know, you've had people say, you know, who are against growth say, well, you know, this is COVID is happening. Immigration is going to be down. No one's going to want to move to cities. You know, not that that has proven to be true at all, but, you know, it has allowed people to sort of take that position. Um, I do think, though, that in as much as everyone's sort of defaulting to their priors, I do think there's also a, a recognition that we need to change the way we built. You know, where we started, what you said at the beginning, that, you know, your world has shrunk during the pandemic, so has mine. I think that's true for a lot of us. You know, what might have seemed like an abstraction before, the idea that, you know, it would be nice to have, you know, some shops within walking distance of my home. It might be nice to have better public transit so I can get around. You know, those might have seemed like nice-to-haves before, but, you know, after you spend months and months locked up in your house or in your apartment, uh, this starts to feel less abstract and more like something that actually requires change. So I think there's the sentiment is shifting a little bit, and the, you, I have seen a few politicians start to embrace that idea or to talk about it. But of course, to move from that into actually making policy and then executing on that policy is going to be a long road. I mean, these things move slowly. Well, this is my last question. Does the sentiment or appetite even matter that much when given what we've seen this year with the pandemic and, of course, the ongoing uh, climate crisis, which is going to force us to rethink how we do suburbs and car use? You know, how much of this is just about getting a head start on something that's going to be necessary eventually anyway? I think I think it's a fantastic question because I, I passionately believe that infill, to use the planning language, is the future. I mean, even our what we think of as our densest and biggest cities are for the most part not that crowded. By global standards, even Toronto is not that crowded. Most of Vancouver is not that crowded. We have a lot of room to put more people in those cities and to take advantage of all of the amenities that they already offer. And in terms of addressing the climate crisis, that is going to be absolutely crucial. I mean, there are climate leaders like David Miller, the former mayor of Toronto, um, who will talk about the benefits that cities have in fighting the climate crisis. 
you know, and the basic argument is that people who live in cities simply have smaller carbon footprints. You know, they live in less real estate, they drive less, the things that they own tend to travel fewer distance, shorter distances, and all of that is very consistent and, you know, and provable. So, you know, there is a strong climate case for this stuff. And I think you're right that at some point in the future, you know, our policy at all levels of government will start to recognize that even more than it already has today. And we'll start to say, you know, achieving greener cities and achieving a lower carbon society really does mean we have to make some different choices and we have to live closer together. So I hope <laughs> that this moment and that this recognition that it might be time for a reset, you know, starts that process and gets us going down that road where, you know, I hope and think we will end up anyway. I will share your hopes, but also not hold my breath. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm with you. Alex Bozikovic, columnist and architecture critic at The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. We've got more big stories at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. I'm going to have a contest one day, and we'll see which one of our listeners can recite this episode-ending spiel most accurately. We'll give you a tote bag or something once I make some tote bags. Anyway, you can email us. We are at The Big Story Podcast. That's all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And, of course, we are in your favorite podcast player that is Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. Check us out there. Tell your friends. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. All of that good stuff. We appreciate it every time we tell our friends when you leave us a nice one. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.